everybody. So glad to have you, our guests, and everybody here. I uh, want to welcome you and those of you watching online and all those guys there at Die Ball in our Die Ball location. Glad you guys are joining us. Uh, you're not a project. You're part of our church family if you want to be. And we're just thrilled that you guys are joining us right there uh, at your own location. Let's give everybody joining us a great hand this morning. Yeah. Want to jump right in. We're going to gallop through some content today. This morning, I want to teach through a story, and our journey covers a lot of scriptural ground, uh, 32 chapters, in fact. We're going we're gonna to blaze a trail through 32 chapters of First and Second Samuel. It's fun reading. It's like Robin Hood on steroids, and instead of spending all of our time reading the chapters, I want to take a quick gallop through some of the historical events that lead us to where we're going to set up camp in a moment. Uh, this sermon, if you've been here for more than four years, four years ago, I preached this story. And just like any good story, I think it's worth repeating. And uh, if you've read the Bible once, you know what? You should read it again. You should. And so you may remember, if you've been here for more than four years, uh, this sermon. But I think it's an important time, especially as we're moving through the story and we're looking at King David, it's important to kind of refocus and re-engage some lessons. So last week... Last week, when we talked about a shepherd turned king in 1 Samuel 17, from the sidelines of the battlefield, we examined David's life-changing victory over Goliath, and it was this moment where David <laughs> chops off the head of the giant, and the Israelites surge forward against Philistine opposition, and was the defining moment of David's destiny. Then, in the very next chapter... The plot begins to thicken around David's journey towards the throne. In private, David had been anointed as the next king. In private, uh, Samuel, the prophet, had stripped away the anointing of Saul. God had stripped it away, but Samuel made it official and said, King, you may be king, but you're not the king in God's eyes. And there was this reality of public appearance in Saul and private reality of, an, of the anointed David who's going to be taking the throne. And the plot begins to thicken. It was King Saul and his army that ride back into town after David's victory over Goliath. And they're all met with this huge celebration, something like you'd see after winning the World Series. You know, confetti falling from the skyscrapers, trapeze artists, you know, flying through the air. Some, some guy blowing fire. Ladies are in the street dancing with their hand cymbals and tambourines. And the song they're singing is, Saul has slain his thousands. But David, his tens of thousands. Saul is kind of cool, but David's the new Hebrew idol. You know, like, like it was Saul's kind of been really great, but David is the new Beatles. I mean, like they were, they were jacked about David. And it was this song that Saul, already knowing in private that he'd been stripped away from the kingdom as the, as the king, it sparked this jealous rage inside Saul that led him to distrust and uh, try to destroy David. Even though he gave David his own daughter, even though he promoted David to a leading rank in the military, even though uh, 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 he uh, gave David a tax-free status in Israel, through the rest of 1 Samuel, Saul begins to devise traps and snares and scenarios to try and get David and kill him. Somehow Saul knew that David was a threat. All the while, David loved Saul. This is crazy. Saul hated David. David was loyal and loved 
his king. Had opportunities to kill Saul, but he didn't. Yet Saul went to great lengths to have David killed. He's a king chasing a gnat in the desert for most of his adult life. Saul spends much of the rest of his life hunting David. The wedge of hatred that Saul drives against David forces David out of the country, uh, has to leave his, uh, his, uh, uh, Saul's daughter, uh, David's wife. Has to, he has to leave and go basically live in the caves with a group of a misfit band of brothers, a bunch of guerrilla mercenaries, and they, they go to the caves of Adullam outside Israel and they live as this kind of, he's like this tribal king of this group of mercenary Vikings, if you will. Now, finally, in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul is tragically wounded in a battle against those same Philistines. And Saul, from, to keep himself from being captured by the enemy and publicly humiliated, physically humiliated, they would hang the, 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 the body of uh, the king on a wall and take its head off. So instead of going through the beginning process of that, Saul falls on his own sword on the battlefield and kills himself. Now, we jump into 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel opens with the news of Saul's death coming to David, and David weeps. David mourns the, life, uh, the loss of his enemy that he loved. And even without Saul... Saul's sons still try and take on David in a civil war between David and his band of brothers, his mighty men, uh, and, and, and those in Judah. Uh, they, they are against the rest of Israel in this nasty civil war and only by the redemptive power of God. Because here's what we're seeing. There's always this lower story going on in Scripture. There's always something happening, but God is always using it. There's an earthly dilemma that requires a heavenly solution. And what we see is even through this dilemma, God uses this process to still use, uh, pr bring his purposes to the nation of Israel. And so by the redemptive power of God, the tribes of Israel reunite. They reform into one nation. They look for a king, and sure enough, they... They choose David as their king. They crown him, and by the fifth chapter of 2 Samuel, the Israelites have now chosen a new capital city. They couldn't go back to the other capital. There was still like this, this us and them thing. So in order to, to establish this new grouping, this new unity that David's gone, he has to go find a new capital city. And so they siege the city called Jebus. And Jebus was actually within eyesight of the little town where David grew up, Bethlehem. And Jebus, they siege Jebus and, and take over the Jebusites, and they rename the city of Jebus, a very popular name that you may have heard before. They renamed the city of Jebus, Jerusalem. And here we have Jerusalem as the capital city. David is now the king. And in 2 Samuel 5, he begins his 33-year reign in Jerusalem. It is a pinnacle moment for the destiny of David. But... Sounds pretty cool. Sounds like a shepherd turned into king. But you continue to turn the pages of 2 Samuel. You begin to turn the pages of David's life. And things begin to take a, a crazy turn. 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 20 reads like a history of spreading cancer. It's like a, it's like a, a romance novel on downers. And the civil war is over. The land is at peace. 
Israel is entering unprecedented prosperity. God had promised to ensure David's descendants a continuous reign forever. It's looking good. What more could David hope for? The rest of life seemed like it was going to be on cruise control. But instead, as we turn the pages, we fall upon David's life as he experiences history of sin, heartache, murder, rape, hatred, betrayal, grief, rebellion in his own home. In his own family. So 2 Samuel 16, David's kingdom now, over years of being king, is in utter turmoil. He's about to lose it all. His own son, Absalom, has plotted to dethrone him. His son has won the hearts of many of the people, turned the army against him. And David, in order to salvage what's left of the city of Jerusalem from being, you know, in absolute chaos, instead of fighting inside the capital city, David puts his hands up and he chooses to flee the capital city of Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up a, a scripture passage of David fleeing the city as Absalom tries to establish his own kingdom and really kind of finalize this coup d'etat that's going on. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 5. You can read along on the big screen or there in your Bible. I'm going to read it right here. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there, a relative of Saul. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. I'll bleep it, I bleep. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. In other words, this guy has got some guts. This one little guy, David, surrounded by troops, and he's throwing stones and cursing the king. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Ha, ha, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. That's in the King James. That's in the King James translation. No, I'm kidding. You have come to ruin because you're a man of blood. Then Abishai, I love this, then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? And I love this request. Let me go over and cut off his head. I mean, it's just like, King David, may I go cut off his head? And David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, look, my son who is of my own flesh is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Like, my own flesh and blood is against me. Why do you think that I would care about this guy? I got bigger fish to fry, folks. Leave him alone. Let him curse. The Lord has told him to. David's, David is taking this as, okay, God's teaching me something here. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with the good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued Along the road, while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went, throwing stones and showering him with dirt. On the one hand, David is being, has slain his tens of thousands, and they're shouting his praises. The only words being shouted now are the colorful curse words of an angry Israelite. 
What can we learn from this turn of events of a man who is known as a man after God's own heart? What can we learn from a man who loved God but had issues and had to deal with family dysfunction? Let's pray. Let's ask God to reveal some truth this morning. Right here, there in our die ball location, let's pray. Father, in the next few moments we have, would you open this story up? May we, may we have some applicable lessons that aren't just a message on Sunday, but are handlebars for Monday. That we'd be able to take this and apply it and, and learn from it. That these words of the Old Testament scriptures would, would be uh, birthed with freshness in us today in 2018. That, that it would affect our conduct, our convictions, our character as we pursue you, Lord, and not, and not fall in the trap of our own dysfunctions that every single one of us have to deal with. May we be strengthened and a little different when we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it is hard to make an upbeat sermon out of what we're about to talk about, okay? There's a reason we have kids' ministry. I'm just going to tell you now, okay? Because this is like we are adulting today. We are having an adult conversation today, a PG-12 conversation, okay? There are those times we need to hear a word from the Lord that requires us to chew on it, requires us to maybe get uncomfortable. So in order to help us out, let's start with this. In your notes, write this down. What's important to know is that God doesn't hold a grudge. Okay, David's not getting all of this done there are always a byproduct. There's always collateral damage of sin. But, but David isn't experiencing these heartaches in his house because God's mad at him. Because God's just holding a grudge. Just God wants to put the screws on him. We all face consequences of sin that's been forgiven. But God doesn't just sulk with you and mark you off his list. He may spank you. He may correct you. But he doesn't go on and on and on. God himself says, I told you what I wanted to tell you. I've rebuked you. I've disciplined you. There is consequences, but now there's grace. And that's what happened with David. There were times in David's life where he failed miserably, but because of his humility and because of God's grace, we still know him today after a man, after God's own heart. God doesn't hold a grudge. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, how many of you have ever had somebody hold a grudge against you? That's just, like, there's nothing you could ever say or ever do. You do not serve. If anybody's tried to preach to you that, that you serve a God that's holding a grudge, they're wrong. He's ready for, he's ready for forgiveness and redemption. You have to lean into it. Is there consequences of your sin? You bet. But it's not, it's not because he's mad at you, because there's just consequences. Now, we entered into some tough chapters we're, gonna, we're going to situate the primary characters in this story, okay? So David is the king, and David has a household. He's got a big old family, and it's, the family is the culmination of a polygamist household. Let me tell you something. Polygamy is obviously complicated. My one marriage is tough, but eight wives... Take me now, Jesus. <laughs> David's household is full of wives and jealousy and envy and all kinds of contradictions. And this wife who got to sleep with him this night and this wife who had to do the laundry and, and the boys and the, and, and the one daughter and his, his household is extremely crazy. He's got all these children by all these different wives. And on top of this... He has other women who are not his wives who are simply there for the physical and emotional pleasure of the king. 
So like, things are a bit complicated. Now you might say, David, a man after God's own heart, he's, he's a polygamist. I mean, he blesses and anoints David and yet he's a polygamist. How can this even be? Well, God's statement on marriage is clear. One man, one woman for life. However, there are times through the Old Testament scripture that God deals with people where they are. And David was where he was. And not all of these situations, these, all these marriages are relationally driven. Some of them are politically driven. As a king, there's alliances taken and marriages is a result. It, it takes the idea of marriage and it dumbs it down. It doesn't give it the purity that God intended marriage as a symbol of our relationship between God and man, the, the bride and the groom. Nevertheless, God deals with people where they are. You got to be careful not to project 21st century concepts of marriage and life and understanding on a primitive warlord at the end of the Bronze Age because you're going to struggle with that challenge. So God is dealing with David. David is who he is, and he's a profound, prominent, polygamous king, a high-octane king, a battler, um, I mean, a, a strategist. And in this, complicational, in this complication atmosphere, a lot of issues arise. So we got David. We have his wives. One of his wives, Maka or Mecca, has a son named Absalom. So Absalom's dad is David, his mom is Micah. Absalom has a sister, a full, a full sister, because David and Micah have a second child, and that sister's name is Tamar. So we have Absalom and his kid sister, Tamar. You have several other, you have several other children. One of them, a very, very well-known name, is Solomon, who is the son of Bathsheba. Okay, but we're not talking about Bathsheba or Solomon or all that. We're talking about Absalom and Tamar, full-blooded for Maka and David. Then we have another, another wife who has a, a son named Amnon. So, if you can see it, they're all brothers and sisters, but Amnon and Absalom are half-brothers, and Amnon and Tamar are half-brother and half-sister. We, we tracking so far? Okay, here we go. So... David has another wife, his son's name is Amnon, and the Bible says that Amnon is taken with Tamar, has a lust after his half-sister. He falls in love with Tamar. Now, when I say fall in love with her, let me clarify, he's not, it's not love. He has a serious passion, a serious lust after her. He knows that his dad will not allow them to marry because it would be uh, not according to Jewish law for them to marry. So, and he wants her. So he gets help from a relative and he plots this horrible, incestuous violation. It's a pathetic, it's a horrible, seedy, grimy story. Basically, Amnon does this. Amnon claims to David, Dad, I'm sick. David comes to him and says, how can I help you get better? What's wrong, bud? He goes, oh, man, I'm just sick. And the only thing that would make me feel better, you know what would make me feel better, Dad, is if Tamar would, would come over to my room and fix food and sit on the side of my bed and put the food in my mouth with her own hand. I think that would make me feel better. Now, would you, can we just pause the story for a second? 
And I want to say, what? Is that weird? Is it just me or is that weird? Isn't that strange? Why doesn't David question Amnon? Why didn't David say, dude, just like take some NyQuil? Why does it have to be your sister with her food in her hand and your mouth? And ah! Write this down in your notes. When you feel a situation isn't right, when you have that intuitive sense that something's not quite on, write it down. Pay attention! Pay attention! And we got to teach our children to pay attention to this. It's called don't talk to strangers, right? But unfortunately, it's a whole lot of people that aren't strangers. People that people know that do the violating. It happens all the time. We've got to teach our children to pay attention when something doesn't feel right, when something's wrong, not just sexually, but in business, in financial matters, in a contract agreement, in a statement made by a coworker that you overhear to the opposite sex. When you feel like something is weird, stomp on the brakes for a second. And David hears this interesting situation. Either, either he was naive to it or his focus was somewhere else. Anybody ever had a conversation where you're trying to listen, but you're thinking something else? We don't know what happened, but David, David missed it on this. So Tamar, David says, okay. And he sends Tamar to Amnon to his bedroom. And Tamar goes to feed Amnon and Amnon pulls her into bed and he rapes her. And immediately, immediately the Bible says, following this horrible violation, as happens so often, his lust has been spent, and now he can't even stand the sight of her, and so he drives her out of his presence, like, get out of my, get out of my presence, get out of my face. And she's like, don't, what are you, don't drive me out, you just violated me. Driving me out is worse than just the violation. Because in that culture, she was going to be uh, destined to be uh, 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 single the rest of her life. She was in that culture considered to be damaged goods. And she says, no, 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 no. Driving me out is worse than raping me. At least marry me or let's go talk to dad and maybe, maybe he'll let us. Don't kick me out on the street. But her plea does no good. And Amnon says, get out. And so here Tamar is dressed in a multicolored gown. All of David's virgin daughters wear multicolored gowns in public. And when she staggers out in the street after this violation, she steps out and she rips her garment. And she pours ashes on her head. She, I'm ashamed. I'm no longer a virgin. I'm mourning. She's in the, next, she's in the street. And who do you think is the next person she runs into? None other than her older brother, Absalom. The Bible says Absalom is strong, handsome, king material. He, wa- he was the heir apparent to the throne. And Absalom says, oh my God, what is, sister, what's happened? And he says, go, 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 go to my house, go, 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 go change clothes, go to my house, rest. Uh, I'm so sorry. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, Tamar, but it's not okay. It destroys her. It's the end of Tamar. She goes into Absalom's house and she she just ekes out existence. She grieves for the rest of her life. Now, as disturbing as that story is, here's something equally horrific. Are you ready? 
Here's something just equally horrific. David finds out and he doesn't do anything. He finds out about the rape of his own daughter by his own son and he does nothing about it. And there comes a time in life where we got to show grace to people and there comes a time when you shouldn't show grace to people. And when you get those things backwards, you can really damage a situation. There's time in marriage requires grace. And you know what? There's time even in marriage that requires judgment. Parents with your kids, there are times you have to be gentle and caring and gracious. And there are other times that you need to be not gracious. You have to know the difference between the two. And this kind of violation would probably be one of those moments. What David should have done is dragged him out in the middle of the street and executed the boy. It's the Bronze Age. That's how they rolled. But if not, at least throw him into prison for a couple months or a few years or something. But instead, David doesn't do a thing. And Absalom is furious. Remember, this is his full sister who's been violated by his half-brother and their father doesn't lift a finger. Absalom seethes. He doesn't say anything to Amnon. He doesn't do anything. And here's what happens. He waits two years and he stews in his own juices of hurt and hatred and rebellion and anger. And this is a tough, hard character to wait and plot for two years. This is the real first look we see at the kind of, of, the kind of heart Absalom has. And he waits 24 months to exact his revenge. And so two years later, at this banquet, Absalom invites all the brothers and the family and Amnon and the sons to David's house for a banquet. And they're all enjoying and the huge banquet, all the family is there. And in the middle of the festivities, in the middle of eating the turkey legs, in the middle of sitting on the cushy, comfy pillows, Absalom raises his, finger, his hand and snaps his fingers and assassins jump out behind the curtains and they assassinate Amnon. They stab him to death. Someone rushes from the banquet because everything goes into hysterics and they run and find David and they deliver him the wrong message, the Bible says. At first they say, Absalom's killed all your sons and it throws David into this like moment of unbelievable hysterics. But then someone else gallops in, arrives and says, whoa, 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 no, no. Only Amnon has been killed. The others are alive. And at the moment, the rest of his sons ride into David's palace and Absalom flees the capital city. Now, here's the strange thing. David didn't know how to handle Amnon with Tamar. And he doesn't know how to handle Absalom. He, he's, he's struggling. He can, he can lead a charge against a giant. But when it comes to his family, there's struggle. I've seen that so often. Incredible leaders around a boardroom, but difficult to lead their own family. David struggled. Let me tell you something about Absalom. He is a bad mamma jamma. People who justify rebellion and murder because of some wound they took are the most dangerous kind of people you can face. Someone who just like, no, that's how I am. I'm never going to. And they stomp their foot and they refuse to forgive and they won't heal. And they, 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 like, they, they get juice from the bitterness that they hang on to as like a trophy in their life. Be, be aware of those people. Amnon did wrong. David didn't handle it right. But Absalom takes this whole matter and he weaves an entire lifetime 
of rebellion, and he never gives up. He's going to destroy and humiliate David if it's the last thing he does. His wound seems to be unhealable, unfixable, and Absalom becomes David's foremost adult adversary. As David was young, Saul was his enemy. Now as David grows older, his own son is his enemy. And Absalom uses the rape of his own sister to wreak havoc on David's kingdom. Now will you listen to this? There will be a time when you're going to be a co-worker and your boss does something you don't like or you don't approve of. There's going to be a time where your family member, your daughter, or your parent, there's going to be a disappointment. They're going to disappoint you or you act, they act ugly to you or they do something terrible to you. And if you weave that into a lifetime of frustration and resentment, you, you will face a dirty end like Absalom. Someone has done something bad to you, I get it. Someone has hurt you, wronged you, it hurts. Life, life has its mountains and life has its very deep valleys. And I know some people in this room, in all of our locations, there are some deep hurts that people have experienced. They, you, I can't even imagine the kind of hurt. But you cannot take someone else, you can't, you can't take someone else's sin against you and build a lifetime of rebellion and bitterness on it. Would you write this down in your notes? You cannot fix the hurt of being sinned against by sinning against the person who hurt you. And many times that's the vicious cycle. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them. They don't forgive me, I don't forgive them. They want to talk bad about me, oh, I'm getting my Facebook out. Somebody I know, cough, cough. And we just weave it into a fabric of disdain and hurt and bitterness. So what you have to do is you have to live a life of integrity and character that goes beyond it. It finds the healing of God, and Absalom can't get there. His revenge against Amnon, stabbing him to death at the party, doesn't satisfy. It's a bottomless pit. Bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness will never satisfy someone's life. No one will ever go to bed happy saying, I'm living in unforgiveness. It doesn't happen. So now Absalom has fled the city and we enter another character in the story. It's David's right-hand man, his mighty, his mighty main guard named Joab. I've said it like this before. If, if David is Wyatt Earp, like the sheriff, then, 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 um, then Joab is Doc Holliday. So we've got Wyatt Earp who's trying to keep the law, and we've got Doc Holliday who's he's going to do whatever he wants. He'll cut your throat in a poker game anytime. And Joab is a warrior's warrior. He's a trigger-happy, borderline, insane leader of David's mighty men, a really bad dude. And Absalom has fled, and Joab... David's right-hand man comes to David and says, David, okay, Absalom, he did wrong. He killed Amnon. I get it. But David, you, you can't have your own son. You can't have the prince living in a foreign land. So David, some, why? I don't know. But he says, okay, okay. Even though he murdered my son in front of the rest of my family, let Absalom come back into Jerusalem. And so here's another mistake David makes. Would you write it down? If you're going to punish, then punish. Don't do it halfway. If you're going to forgive someone, then forgive them. Don't do either halfway. Like, like, like kids need to know whether they're being disciplined 
or not. <laughs> and they need to know wh- whether it's grace, uh, whether it's time to say it's okay or it's, say, it's not okay. Clarity is a beautiful gift we have to give our kids. And David is not clear on whether he should punish or whether he should forgive. David doesn't punish Amnon for, for violating Tamar. And then when he brings back Absalom back into Jerusalem, he brings him back, but he refuses to see him. I'm not talking to that guy. I'm not, he, he can't be in the palace. I don't, I'm putting a restraining order 100 yards from the palace gates. That's not in the Bible, but it's kind of like it. Don't come near my house. I don't want to see your face. So instead, here's what happens. So instead of living in the exile of a foreign land, Absalom lives in exile in the shadow of the palace. It's like the father and son who fight. And the dad says, okay, I forgive you. You forgive me. But then they never talk to each other. When they do talk, all the sins and the past transgressions float back to the top and they regurgitate the wounds that got them to where they were frustrated with each other. So if you're going to be mad, be mad. If you're going to forgive, forgive, but don't do it halfway because halfway forgiveness is not forgiveness. And some, some, some of us are struggling with halfway forgiveness. And I know it's hard. In fact, uh, Peter asks, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus says 70 times seven. In other words, you're always going to be forgiving. You're always, and, and sometimes you're going to have to remind yourself to forgive again and again, but don't do it halfway. You'll, 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 you'll be disappointed and you won't live the kind of life God's meant you to live when you hang on to those things. So here we go. Absalom's back in town. He wants to get back into the presence of the king. And so what does he try to do? He tries to talk to people close to the king because the king won't talk to him. The, the king won't pick up the phone. The king doesn't answer the text messages. He's tried to message him on Facebook. The king has blocked him from Facebook. And so what he does is he, he, he tries to get a hold of Joab, Doc Holliday. He tries to get a hold of the, the ruthless right-hand man of David. And he leaves message after message, and Joab doesn't return his carrier pigeons. He doesn't return his phone calls. And so you know what crazy Absalom does? You know what he does? Do you know what he does? <laughs> so instead of like writing him another email, he drives over to, to Joab's farm and he, and he burns down his entire estate. So Joab gets home, sees his whole farm is on fire, jumps on a horse and runs down Absalom and says, dude, you burned down my barn and my stuff. And Absalom says, yeah. You didn't return my phone calls. (laughs) Like, you can't reason with crazy people like that. Despite his past behavior, the king, Joab goes to the king and says, give Absalom a chance. Let Absalom come back into graces. And the king bends under Joab's pressure, invites Absalom back into the kingdom. And Absalom, in complete, total and false reverence, totally fake, bows before the king. David gives him the kiss of forgiveness. Everybody in the royal court applauses. But this was just one step. See, if it took two years to kill Amnon, Absalom was just in the middle of the beginning stages of a huge civil war. It was the starting point to his conspiracy. He doesn't walk in the shadows now. He can be out in the front. He's any other son that David has. He's been given back into the graces. He has authority to begin to weave his plan to topple his father's rule. So how does he do it? So there's a system in Israel law called king's court. 
And the king's court was basically like standing before the king like Judge Judy, okay? Uh, king David became Judge Judy one, one day a month, all right? Israelites would have a case that went through small claims court. And if they didn't get the answer they wanted, uh, they got to, to stand in line and get in like a... Uh, first come first serve situation with the king at king's court because anybody who wants to try a case whether they're innocent whether they're guilty they, they still want to try and kind of follow the process and see maybe the king will see it differently everybody wants to win their case whether they're right or wrong so Absalom sets himself up at the side of the road leading to the main gate and as people passed him to go to king's court they would see Absalom and they would bow to Absalom, and Absalom would say, oh, don't bow to me, come here, buddy. And he'd say, come on up here. And he'd say, come up on my chariot, here, have a Dr. Pepper. Let's talk. How's your, how's your wife? How's your kids? What's going on? And they say, oh, man, I'm here for King's Court. My neighbor built a fence a little bit over the property line, and he won't take it down. And now it's just a mess, and I just need to get the king. Oh, man, that stinks. If I were the king, I'd listen to you. If I were the king, I'd make that other guy, I'd make your neighbor take it down and like pay for damages. Am I right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, well, I'm not the king, though. I'm not the king. Better luck next time. But hey, hang in there, bud. Hang in there. Your kids are beautiful. See it. One by one, one by one, he began, the Bible says, to win the hearts of the men of Israel. He'd say, David doesn't have time to listen to you, but if I were judge in the land, I'd do whatever I can to help you. So a guy comes home after waiting all day to see King David. His wife asked him, how did it go? Did we get the fence situation resolved? I waited on the king all day again, this guy says. And he never, he never saw me. I'm never going to get justice. And his wife says, you need to call J.G. Wentworth, 877-CASH-NOW. The man says, man, you know what I really need to do? I, I wish, man, I wish Absalom was in charge. He'd listen to me. Now listen up, everybody. For four years, for four years, he waits two years to kill Amnon, and he weaves this plan of treason for four full years, a calculated rebel. And when the time is right, he makes up this story to David about, hey, I want to go give a sacrifice and worship God in another city. Can I take some men with me? David sends 200 of his military with Absalom and they, they go out of the city of Jerusalem. And by the time they leave with these 200, he sends these messengers to all the little villages all across Israel. And they begin to shout and proclaim, Absalom is now king in Hebron. And it was the beginning of the full out coup d'etat. It's an outright rebellion and he takes with him more army than David has left. So David has to make his decision. Do I fight him right here in my city, in Jerusalem, where there'll be all this bloodshed and will ruin this city? David loves Absalom. Absalom was the heir apparent, not Solomon. And David says, I don't want to fight my own son in my own city. See everything destroyed, including my family. So David marches out. Ragtag bunch of military men follow him. And it's there that we catch up with David and Shimei as he showers David with cuss words and dirt and stones. And David says, I deserve it. Here's what happens. Absalom reenters the city. David has left 10 of his mistresses, his servant girls, his concubines there to take care of the palace. And when Absalom returns back into Jerusalem, 
He establishes residence in the palace. He puts a tent, a pavilion up on the palace roof, the Bible says. And one by one, he takes those ten concubines and he rapes them on the, on the roof of the palace. Can you imagine the humiliation David experienced when words get back to him that Absalom has violated his father like this, his family like this. Absalom intended to utterly humiliate his dad. But we understand the source of it. We under, do you kind of get the source of his wound? It was, it was kind of like, like the act that started it all. It was like Absalom was saying, now maybe you'll know what it felt like when you did nothing about my sister. And I wonder if David ever figured it out. I wonder if he put two and two together. Did he ever realize his contribution to Absalom's behavior by his failure to address Amnon? We don't know. Would you write this down? There are those wounds that are simply beyond the power to be healed. Not because God is not a healer, but because people won't let go of the hurt. There's some people that are walking wounded not because God's not ready to heal. They're walking wounded because they won't let go of the hurt. Wounds like that devastate entire companies. They gut marriages. They destroy families. They cripple churches. When somebody refuses to submit themselves to the healing grace of God, they run the risk of damaging themselves and those around them. Can I say something to you and to me? Let go of it. If you've been hurt, if you've been wounded, if you've been damaged, someone you thought you could trust with everything and they wounded you, give it to God. Put it in the hands of God. His hands can handle it if they hold the world. His hands can hold your hurt. And Absalom wreaks havoc for a while, but eventually the tables turn, as they always do. Absalom, in one little battle, tries to flee David and his men, and he's galloping through a heavily wooded forest on a mule. He's riding to escape, and his head gets lodged in a low-hanging branch, and the mule keeps running, and there Absalom is, hanging by his hair. And here comes Joab. This is a brutal moment. I wonder if Absalom's regretting burning his farm down now. Uh, Joab spears Absalom through the heart with three javelins. And ten other soldiers gather around him. And like he's a pinata, they, they, they spill his guts on the forest floor. A tragic end to a rebellious man. David went through the affair with Bathsheba. He tried to cover it up. He murdered her husband Uriah, and there were consequences to that sin. But out of it was the birth of Solomon, and God, as David said, cleanse my heart, God. God, forgive me. God, I'm the man. God, I don't want... God, David surrendered and humbled himself. God restored and gave grace. But Absalom was wounded, made mistakes. He, he went through the rape of his sister and he can't comfort her. His father doesn't lift a finger. He goes through, she goes through a nervous breakdown. He winds up an angry rebel committing treason. He, he, he commits the same crime he hated. Sometimes people hurt us and we hate them so much that we actually can become more like them. You can have things that people did so badly to you that you actually, you become bitter like them and you don't even know it. 
So regardless of your hurts and your anger and despite what you've been told or how you've been treated, no matter how low the valley is, no matter how dark the shadow, we all have the capacity to receive the power of God and the grace of God. David was a giant killer, everybody. He was a powerful warrior. The evidence also indicates he loved his children, but he was a bad dad at times. So as a final thought today, I'll put this formula together for for the right and wrong response when facing a struggle. Write this down. here's, Here's one thing we can do. Look at it. Being right plus winning the fight plus losing your family in the process or losing your marriage in the process or losing your friends in the process is what? It's the wrong response. And I mean, we love to be right, don't we? And we love to win the fight. But if the result is losing friendships over this battle, it's the wrong response. So what's another response I might suggest to you today that we see all through Scripture? Here it is. Owning your part, humbling yourself, admitting where you are at fault. David couldn't own up to his mistakes sometimes. Plus, leading with love and leading with humility and Trusting God through the junk because junk is a promise in families. You're going to deal with some junk. Whether you're righteous or unrighteous, it rains on us both. And then you add this of time. If you own your part and you lead with love and humility and you trust God through the storms, trust God through the junk, trust God through the horrific moments of injustice that you might face or someone else might face. Wow, that's the right response. And he had his ups and downs. He had his mountains and his valleys. He had more than a handful of regrets. But through it all, David still ended by putting his trust in the Lord. He wasn't perfect. Lord have mercy, he wasn't perfect. But despite his colossal problems, his family dysfunctions, God didn't hold a grudge against David. It was a real life, a raw life, full of problems kind of life, just like yours and just like mine. And yet in that space between the real and the ideal, God gives undeserved grace. Your history, everybody, your history is being written every single day. Every single day goes into the history books. Don't let, don't let history describe you like Absalom, bitter, Rebellious, unforgiving, seething, troublemaker, who, could, who, who, who couldn't forgive, who held on to a grudge. Lead with humility. And over time, through the pain, through the junk, through the regrets, there will be more mountains. There will be more valleys. And through it all, David is still known as a man after God's own heart. And man, I've had my ups and downs and my moments of regret. My areas where God's still carving off the the rough edges, but I want my mom and my dad, I want my, my wife, I want my children to see me as someone who's chasing after the redemption of God, the grace of God with humility, owning my own part when I mess up. God can use that kind of heart. Would you pray with me this morning? If you're here today and maybe there's some regrets that you have, some times where you've not handled the situation the way you wish you would have. Can we be honest with each other? Maybe you just put a hand up in the air right now. Well, I didn't handle that right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm with you. You can put your hands down. Maybe you're here and you've been wounded and you're looking for God to deal with the wound in your heart. It's fresh. Or maybe it's been a while, but it's still, it's still an open wound. And you'd like the grace of Jesus to, to, to see that wound healed in the name of Jesus. If that's you, you're, you you're, you're the walking wounded today with honesty. Would you put a hand up? I want to pray for you. Yeah. Yeah. He's not forgotten you. He loves you. He sees you. Put it in his hands. Father, thank you that you're not mad at us. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you deal with us right where we are, just like you did David. It's overwhelming to think that he's known in history as a man after your own heart, but it's actually a little relieving to know he had some issues because it means I'm in good company. It reminds us, Lord, that there's not a single perfect person among us except you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to ask forgiveness where it is necessary. Lord, for anybody in the sound of my voice at both locations, if we need to ask forgiveness, may we do it. Father, if there's an area where we've been wounded, wounded, someone we didn't know well or someone we thought we knew in and out, Jesus, give us the strength Give us the power to forgive. May we humble ourselves, open our palms, let it go, and offer and offer to God fill our hearts with that emptiness that it feels that we think that that resentment might fill our heart. God, it only it only takes away from us. May we offer everything to you, any kind of rebellious spirit in our in our hearts and in our minds that we would chase after you just as you continue to chase after us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen.